You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Tell the communities they deserve better and tell the communities that the university will support them in seeking to achieve better and then working with the agencies to say you're going to deliver better. Hello, bonjour and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. We haven't been focusing on what capacity we have and what our consumption rates do to our capacity. And we haven't been focusing on how the contaminants that we put into our water can be so dangerous that it can make whatever water that we still do have unpotable. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm glad to welcome Paul Gallet as my guest. Back in the bad old days with DuPont and 3M, EPA knew the results of a lot of the studies that were being done and did not act, but we have to play catch up. We have to do everything faster now than we would have had we addressed these issues sooner. Paul is lecturer and co-director at the Columbia Climate School. New York City may be a very rich city, but it has overburdened school system. It has a public health system that is also underinvested in. It has public housing that is underinvested in. So the difference between an eight billion dollar filtration system and a $1 billion pollution prevention system provides resources to spread the benefits to other important investment opportunities for New York City. Columbia University is a global leader in climate and sustainability education, aiming to bring an interdisciplinary knowledge base for future climate leaders to work with businesses, communities, governments, and civil society to address the climate crisis. If you recall season 3, episode 13, I had David Lloyd Owen on that microphone to discuss his book, Global Water Funding. I've said it several times ever since, but if there's one book you shall read to understand the water challenges ahead, it's this one. It's hard to read, it's packed, and it's dense, but it's invaluable. So in that book, I discovered the Catskill Mountain and Croton Watershed Agreements, which the city of New York concluded in the 1990s. The idea was to leverage nature-based solutions to prevent pollutants from entering New York's water scheme, rather than heavily investing in a treatment plants that would take them out. Since then, we've further explored nature-based solutions on that microphone with the city of Glasgow, the city of Paris, or watershed experiments in Italy and Austria. Yet, I had never heard of the one Paul will touch on in a minute after expanding on the New York watershed example I just mentioned. And that new program he'll introduce to us is the perfect example of a clever application of the climate change adaptation we discussed with Kevin Soffen last week. Climate change is here to stay. It will have consequences and fencing those off using nature sounds like a very sensible approach. Water quality, involving communities, teaching or further researching, there's a dense agenda for today's conversation. So without further ado, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, please, and I can't stress that enough, share it around you. Grab your friends' phones and subscribe them to the podcast. Recommend your favorite episode to a colleague or tell the word with a LinkedIn post. And of course, if there's anything you don't like about the podcast, come tell me. Come and do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, 
GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Antoine, thank you. So if I'm right, you are the host here. You know the building, you know everything, so I have to be cautious. <laughs> well, Colombia has tens of thousands of people all working in the same direction, which is to actually figure out what sustainability looks like and then help build it. So if the aim is to head towards sustainability, how do we have to rethink water? Well, we've taken it for granted. We've done a lot of damage, both in terms of supply and water quality, but we also have neglected to bring people into the equation as we work to provide for sustainable water supply, as we work to provide for safe drinking water, and as we work to make sure that our communities understand the challenges ahead and can plan ahead for them. So what makes you think that we've failed in those tasks? We have images of many of our aquifers and our reservoirs that show significant drawdown well above a reasonable carrying capacity. And we haven't been working on a water budget, but I have this hat, this cap, and it has water printed on the front of it. And it's my water cap, because when I was working for the state of New York, we put caps on the consumption in a very heavily populated part of New York called Nassau County on Long Island. And those limits, those pumpage limits, are why Nassau has adequate supply now. But how many communities really got out ahead of a water budget? And so we haven't been focusing on what capacity we have and what our consumption rates do to our capacity. And we haven't been focusing on how the contaminants that we put into our water can be so dangerous that it can make whatever water that we still do have unpotable. When you mention these elements of the quantity and the quality, is it on the households that we should focus first? Or is it the industry? Or is, is it the agriculture? Which is the part of this water cake, which is the first portion to look at? They're all essential. And I would say that we have to start with our residential systems mm -hmm. because while industry is essential, industry does not produce products where the water goes into someone's body as it does in a household or where it goes into a product at a farm or where you're growing food or raising cattle. Public health depends on safe, abundant, affordable drinking water, especially in the pandemic we found that to be the case. And so we really do have to focus first and foremost on understanding the threats to residential and agricultural water supply. So that means that the number one challenge is really linked to health. We have to, to highlight this link between water and health, forget you right. Absolutely. There is this expression, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. And at least you know when your well runs dry, you have to deepen it or connect to some other system or, or go buy big pallets of water from the store. But you don't know when your water quality has declined either because of excess nitrogen 
or because of these PFAS chemicals or any of the other emerging contaminants, the remnants from pharmaceuticals that can be in water supply. So better testing, you know, New York has the Emerging Contaminants Protection Act since 2018. It set limits on one for dioxane. It set limits on several of the PFAS chemicals. Numerous other states are starting to do the same thing. But so many chemicals are poorly understood as to A, how much there is in our drinking water supply, and B, what we need to do to make that drinking water supply safe. To that extent, how does it change the picture with the recent directives the EPA has enforced over this last June and August about GenX and PFAS? Did it change, move the needle, change the picture? It's been a long time coming. It's a great start. It has to be built upon because you can manipulate those chemicals ever so slightly and then you're no longer under regulation. So it's sort of chasing a bit of a moving target. Mm -hmm. There's a significant degree of private litigation that is forcing communities and businesses to come to grips with the risks associated with these perfluoroalkaline chemicals. EPA is getting there. They've been promising to get there for quite a long time and they knew for even longer. Back in the bad old days with DuPont and 3M, EPA knew the results of a lot of the studies that were being done and did not act. But we have to play catch up. We have to do everything faster now than we would have had we addressed these issues sooner. You, you mentioned this Emerging Con Contaminant Act in New York, which is active since 2018, right? Yes. How is it enforced? How do you measure this one for dioxin, this emerging contaminants? Is it at the entry of a building? Is it at the tap of selected people? Is it at the outlet of disinfection factory in, in New York? How is it done? I think it's at the outlet from the water supply or the outlet from the treatment facility. You can't expect the water supplier to guarantee that pipes going up into somebody's tap are safe. That's a whole different system. But One of the other things about that Emerging Contaminants Protection Act is it's got to come with uh, support for small municipal systems to actually do what's necessary to restore water quality and remove contamination. Some of these filtration processes for these PFAS chemicals are hugely expensive. And it's why prevention is so important. It's why one of the things that the state of New York is doing that my uh, former employer, Hudson Riverkeeper, helped pioneer is to develop a track-down system to keep the contaminants out of people's supply in the first place, mm -hmm. which is ever so much less expensive than actually stripping contaminants out of water supplies once they get in there. And what's your role as Columbia in all of that? Are you the one which is saying, hey, there's a problem showing where the problem is? Are you helping to be part of the solution? What's your involvement? I, I have two jobs at Columbia. I'm an educator and a researcher. Mm -hmm. And I teach uh, two classes, one on U.S. water and energy policy generally. Mm -hmm. And I want my students to come out of that course with a sense as to how to actually make change and build solutions and do prevention. And the other course I teach is about the New York City Watershed Agreement in the 1990s, in which the communities that host New York's drinking water reservoirs came together with the city to try to provide for economic opportunity as a way of making it worthwhile for them to help support clean drinking water for the nine or 10 million New Yorkers downstate consume it. So that's the education side. And my job is to help students understand the challenges of actually 
making change and restoring water quality and rebuilding capacity. My research is more focused on the other end of the spectrum, which is storm water management, storm and flood protection, and sustainability of communities that otherwise are at risk from sea level rise, storm surge, and large stationary uh, rain systems. And it all comes under the rubric of the university's new effort, the fourth purpose, as they call it, to go beyond just research, to go beyond just education, and to bring that research and education together with practice and make change today, because we don't have time to make change tomorrow if we can make that change today. So many nuggets to unpack in what you just said. Let me come back to, to this 1990 approach, which is often mentioned as a perfect example of nature-based solutions. I'm going to take my muggle hat on. I'm not the specialist here. New York City had the choice between going into advanced water treatments and say, regardless of the water quality which enters the system, we will be able to treat it or to better protect the Catskill Mountains, the Croton watershed. And they took that decision, which at the time, if I'm right, was even cheaper. In, Significantly. Uh, yeah. Eight billion for filtration and roughly a billion for source-based protection. And so they have this multi-barrier approach where they try to keep contamination out of the water supply through conservation easements and streamside restoration projects to keep contaminants out of the feeder streams and working with farms to reduce the amount of nitrogen pollution that otherwise would go into the drinking water supply. So this multi-barrier approach to protecting water at its source, it has many benefits as opposed to a filtration plant, which is simply designed to deal with a problem after it's been created. If you keep the contamination out of the water supply, not only do you have healthy water, you have healthier farms. You have more vibrant communities surrounding the reservoir. Wars. You have better opportunities for recreation. You have a higher quality of life in those communities. It is a big deal in the upstate communities for New York City to be able to help control their land use. They resent it. But since New York is investing in these communities so aggressively, they resent it less. Don't take me wrong. I have to play the devil's advocate here. And it's going to sound terrible what I'm going to say. But New York City is the second richest city in the world behind Vaduz, which is the capital of Liechtenstein, which is arguably not a city. So let's say the richest city at all in the world. We have all that science and technology available. Why would we bother dealing with nature to do the job when we could be absolutely safe and sure by putting whatever filters in, in the system? And even worse, if now I'm the man in the street who doesn't know really about nature-based solutions versus treatment technology, wouldn't I feel safer if you told me that we've put the state-of-the-art technology in a treatment facility downtown, which is very close to my home and delivers me perfect drinking water. Filtration only takes out certain sorts of pollution, mainly bacteria and turbidity and the like. It doesn't take out other types of pollution that you're better off trying to prevent from getting into the drinking water supply in the first place. That's one. Number two, New York City may be a very rich city, but it has overburdened school system. It has a public health system that is also underinvested in. It has public housing that is underinvested in. So the difference between an $8 billion filtration system and a $1 billion pollution prevention system provides resources to spread the benefits to other important investment opportunities for New York City. You mentioned the research area, 
which is linked to flood prevention or stormwater management. Yeah. If I'm right there as well, New York has quite an interesting approach with bringing some more green in the city outside of Central Park on a small scale and distributed across the city. New York is facing the challenges that any coastal city is facing. By 2050, the water levels will be nearly two feet higher than they were in the year 2000. And that's if we're lucky. If we're unlucky, it will be higher still. That coupled with storm surge from large wind-driven storms, stationary storms like Hurricane Ida and Henri last fall in 2021. The risks to community, life, limb, and property are growing. And so you're going to need to have, again, a multi-barrier approach, mm -hmm. a layered solution, because one community may be able to make use of uh, barriers, hard concrete barriers to protect them. But other communities may not have the opportunity to build those barriers. They may not be feasible. Will that community benefit from efforts to have water retained in wetlands? Or will that community benefit from the opportunity to have a system where uh, parks have perme permeable surfaces and so the water will percolate in and not go into the storm sewers? Will they bring build storm storage tanks to contain some of that stormwater runoff mm -hmm. so that it doesn't end up in people's basements. We need to take advantage of every technique we can. One of the most interesting is to try to rebuild the oyster reefs along the shoreline of New York City that used to exist that would break the wave energy and reduce the storm intensity before it got onto land. There's a project in New York City called the Billion Oyster Project wow. that is about 250 million oysters into their billion oyster target. And they're rebuilding these reefs and building living shorelines. So you, you restore wetlands, you build some stationary structures when necessary, when the other nature-based solutions won't work. You build ways to retain the stormwater. And if you do all of these things thoughtfully and with the community partner, working side by side with the government, we have a shot at actual sustainability and protection from these storm risks. Is that part of your research? Absolutely. And I focus as much on the community side, combining the engineering and scientific expertise of the government agencies with the wisdom in the communities as to where the problems are most intense and where the potential solutions lie. Where can we concentrate our investment and actually get the most storm prevention bang for the buck. So my job is to bring the community wisdom and expertise together with the agency wisdom and expertise from the academic standpoint. Again, the university's fourth purpose, making a difference in the world today. It's one of the things that I'm proudest and one of the reasons that drew me to Columbia. And what is your single special so special trick to get the communities on board for this kind of approaches, this kind of research? To tell the communities they deserve better and tell the communities that the university will support them in seeking to achieve better and then working with the agencies to say, you're going to deliver better. And as I mentioned during my talk earlier, the Army Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for creating these shoreline protections, has agreed to do better 
and to create an environment and climate justice working group for their harbor and tributaries shoreline protection study. And when we went to visit with the Army Corps in May to uh, see if we could create some sort of a better process and deliver on the promise to the community that you deserve better and you're going to get better, we were hoping that the Army Corps would agree to continue the dialogue. And before we had a chance to suggest that, they said, well, what if we had an ongoing dialogue in this working group? And it's always better when it's the idea of the agencies that are responsible mm -hmm. rather than having it foist upon them. Well, it's a fascinating field I could go on for, for a while, but I have to be cautious of your time. You came to a conference, you probably want to attend the conference. To round that discussion off, I just have a couple of rapid-fire questions. My first one is, what is the most exciting project you've been involved in and why? At Columbia, the most exciting project is the Army Corps of Engineers agreeing to sit side by side with communities, to enfranchise communities, to empower communities, so that we can co-create the knowledge necessary to protect the communities from storm surge and sea level rise. In the past, when I was with Hudson Riverkeeper, so many exciting things, but I would never say that anything was better than New York deciding to reinvest in its water supply and wastewater treatment infrastructure, that $4.4 billion that they have appropriated in grants for communities since 2015 that is single-handedly restoring water quality to communities across New York State. And finally, what is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? How the money that the federal government and the states are now investing through the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the American Rescue Act and the Infrastructure Act, how it's actually put into practice, how the checks are cut and to whom, and based on what sort of inclusive practice to design the solutions that are being funded in a way that truly benefits everybody in a community and does resilience and sustainability for those who need it the most. Well, Paul, it's been an incredible time for me to get a piece of your wisdom. So thanks a lot for sharing and I wish you a good rest of the conference. Oh, thank you, Antoine, and thank you for covering these issues. I appreciate that very much. Thanks a lot. This is it for another episode of the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'd like to hand out a special thanks to Science Water for enabling it. And if you enjoyed it, make sure to give it a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. I don't know if I deserve five stars, but my guest surely does. Do it now, tell it to your friends, and I'll be back very soon with the next interview.